This is this is awkward. I broke the um, mic that goes over your ear, so in case you're wondering where that went, I broke it during the first song. Uh, so I'm just awkwardly getting this set up here. All right, so listen, what we're going to be talking about today, um, if you uh, have any children with you in service and you have not had um, the uncomfortable conversation of babies, now is your opportunity to put them in kids' class. Um, I'm just giving you a heads up. We're going to be talking about uh, a very sensitive subject today. If you have um, possibly had some uncomfortable uh, and extremely wrong experiences in that area, I just want you to be mentally, emotionally prepared uh, for what we are talking about today, both with your children that might be present um, as well as with yourself. So with that being said, we're hitting some heavy stuff today, so let's just have a word of prayer as we begin this word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you um, that you are a God who cares deeply about us. We thank you that you are a God who um, did not spare sensitive subjects in your word, but you gave us something that we could, that we could look to, uh, to see your goodness amidst even the worst of situations. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the way that it still stands true and as a place of encouragement in our darkest hours. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are in the midst of a series that is titled Bloodline, the Women. We are looking at women in the lineage of Jesus now all the way through Advent. Advent is this season on the church calendar that begins in the month of uh, December, and it leads us into, uh, into Christmas. And so now through that point, we're going to be looking at some of the strong and amazing women that are listed in the lineage of Jesus. Uh, I have the opportunity to talk to you today about a woman named Tamar. And gosh, when I looked at the passage, when I looked at her life, I've talked about her many times in small group settings, uh, but I have honestly never seen her story preached in the front of a church. And I was debating how I was going to do this, how I could talk about the things that she went through, uh, how to even read the passage and avoid some of the uncomfortable things. And to be honest, the conclusion I came to at the end of reading her story is that donuts are sugar-coated, not the Word of God. And so we are going to look at exactly what this Bible says about the life of Tamar. So if you were here last week, then you got to hear Corey talk about Sarai or Sarah and Abraham and what they lived through. Well, Abraham and Sarah went on to have a child that they named Isaac. And Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. And then after Isaac and Rebekah, they had a son named Jacob. And their son Jacob later got renamed Israel by God. And that's where we get the nation of Israel right? That's what it's named after. It's, it's named after its patriarch, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, and Jacob's 12 sons formed what we here in the Old Testament referred to as the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob's 12 sons became the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. And of those 12 tribes, there's a tribe named Judah. And that is where we are today. Before we get into our passage, which is Genesis 38, we got to talk about Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, the 12 brothers 
things come to a head because there's, there's some animosity amongst them. You can imagine with 12 brothers that things get a little heated once in a while. Well, there, there's this youngest son, and his name was Joseph. Joseph was blatantly his father's favorite. It was not even remotely a little bit hidden. Um, Joseph was the favorite son. And the other 11 brothers got pretty upset with the fact that Joseph was blatantly dad's favorite. And so um, their anger got, got a little beyond uh, just sibling rivalry. And the brothers decided that they were going to kill Joseph. They were going to make it look like an animal had gotten to him. And they decided they're going to kill their brother. Well, Judah, in, you know, I, I don't know, trying to come up with something lesser, he decides, let's not kill our brother. Let's just sell him. Because that seems also like a great option, right? I don't know. Why? 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 Why did they hate him so much? But they go through with this. So Judah leads the way in his brother's selling their son or selling their brother Joseph they sell him to a group of Ishmaelites which if if we get further earlier in the old testament we could talk about that but they sell him to a group of Ishmaelites and then they take this coat that their father had given Joseph as a gift and they cover it in blood and they tell their dad that, their, that his son had died. So they convince their dad that one of his sons is dead, and they actually have sold him into a life of slavery. So enter chapter 38 of Genesis, right? This is starting in, a, in already a difficult place. So we're going to read in Genesis 38 um, what Judah's response was after he led his brothers in selling Joseph. It says, About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Tyra. So he fleed, right? He didn't want to look at himself. He didn't want to look at his father. He didn't want to deal with anything that he had done. So he left. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant, and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again, gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kezib. In the course of this time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. I thought this was the story of Judah and Tamar. But wait, she's married to Ur. Hold on, let's keep going. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight. So the Lord took his life. And then Judah said to Ur's brother, Onan, go and marry Tamar as our law, he's talking about the Israelite law, requires the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. I told you it was going to get awkward. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. 
So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would die too. He assumed she was cursed. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to, to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah, the third son, had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and he propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. Well, what kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterward, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend, Hira, the Adulamite, to take the young goat to the woman to pick up the things he had given her as a guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance of Enam? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere, and the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We would be the laughing stock of the village if we went back to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now because of this, she is pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. So we're going to take a pause there, because we just read a lot. So we saw right at the start of verse 1 that Judah fled after, his, after what he and his brothers had done to Joseph. We saw that he married a Canaanite, which for an Israelite to marry a Canaanite, already the first thing he did after fleeing his family, instead of telling the truth, instead of even saving his brother, instead of selling his brother, he married a Canaanite woman, which is already stepping outside the law of Israel. So the first thing he does after he leaves is step outside the law of God. Now, we don't know much about Ur. 
So when he arranged this marriage from between Tamar and Ur, all that we see about this first son of his is that he was so evil that God put him to death. Now let's frame this for a second. Judah trafficked his brother by definition of what human trafficking is. That is what Judah did. He sold his brother into slavery. Then he ran away. Then he married a Canaanite woman. And on top of all of that, he's letting his dad think that one of his kids is dead. I would say all of that is pretty evil, but Ur was worse. Ur was so much worse that God found it fit for him to die and Judah to live. So we don't know anything about this first son, but we know that he was that bad, right? So then Judah wants to invoke Israelite law now. He didn't want to do it earlier, but he wants to invoke it now with his son Onan. And he tells Onan, hey, by our law, by Israelite law, it is required that you marry the widow, that you marry your brother's wife, and you have to give her a child that will get your brother's inheritance. Now, something we need to know about the laws at that time, a widow could not inherit anything that was promised to her husband, and nor could a daughter. So, women could get nothing when they were left widowed. Their only hope at that time was to have had a son that can get his father's inheritance and then provide for her. So when Tamar's, when Tamar's husband that she has been arranged to dies, she is left with nothing because she has no child. She has no right to any inheritance of her husband. And the only hope she has is to have a child with his brother, who is now her forced second marriage. So it was the duty of Onan to produce an heir. But what did Onan know? Onan knew that any heir that he produced with Tamar was going to give him a lesser inheritance. So what Onan chose to do was to continuously use this woman for sex and give her nothing that was going to provide her safety and security for her future. So she's stuck again in an abusive marriage. We don't know what happened with Ur, but we know he was that bad that he was killed. And then she gets stuck with his brother who's treating her like an object for his pleasure and giving her nothing to provide her security in her future. And so God strikes Onan dead as well. So then Judah, instead of evaluating his household, Judah decides this woman must be cursed. Surely it can't be my boys. Surely it can't be my boys. It must be this woman. She is cursed. And so he sends her back as a widow 
to her home. Do you know what happens to widows? Widows are viewed as the absolute bottom of society because the only thing that women could do at that time was produce kids and take care of a house. And her two husbands had died, which got her viewed as cursed. She couldn't have any sons, so the issue must be her. The issue has to be her. So she gets sent home and shamed and lives as what is considered a burden on her family. You see, marriages were arranged so that a family could gain status and gain good things for their household. So families were paid upon the arrangement of a marriage, but now hers has failed. So not only is she cursed, not only could she not do the one thing that a woman was supposed to do, not because it was her fault, but because her wicked husband decided to do what he did. And so then she gets sent home to be viewed as a cursed burden on her household. Can you imagine the shame that is surrounding Tamar? The absolute shame. So she gets blamed for everything. She gets blamed for everything that had gone wrong. But then we see that she dresses up and stands on the side of the road. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the lineage of Jesus taught, but any time that I've ever heard the lineage of Jesus taught, the way that I always heard it was, oh, look at how God can use anyone. Look at the women who get listed. Tamar deceived a man, and she was a prostitute, but she got grafted in. Well, what I see, what I see is a woman who got used and abused and did the only thing that she could do to hold the people in her life accountable to what she had been promised. See, Judah put the blame on others instead of taking responsibility for the actions of himself and his sons. We see that all it took, all it took was Tamar standing on the side of the road one time and Judah was like, hey, let me get that. That's all it took. That's all it took. And then he handed over some of the most prized things that he had, the things that identified him as a man of power and wealth. And he just handed them to a woman on the side of the road so that he could sleep with her. And he had so little regard for women that when he was having a conversation with his daughter-in-law, yes, yeah, she was wearing a veil, but he didn't even recognize the sound of, his vo of her voice. He spent so little time with his family that he arranged a marriage, put this woman with two of her sons, and he couldn't even figure out her voice? Are you kidding me? This is a time without caller ID, right? So you're, you're sitting in the back of your house and somebody walks in and you hear them talk and you're like, oh, they're here. He didn't have ways of indicating, oh, I'm, let, me put this, let me put this on red and set this down. Let me, ooh, let me not answer that because I can see who's calling. No. He was standing in front of his daughter-in-law. I don't care if that woman was wearing a veil. I can tell who somebody is the second they walk into my house by the sound of their voice. He had such disregard for this woman when she was living in her house that he couldn't even pick up her voice when she was standing in front of him. Where do you think his sons got the view of women that they had? Where do you think they learned it? They learned it from their father. When he looked at Onan and said, hey, it's our duty. You need to provide a son. You need to provide an heir. 
for your brother. Do you know why Onan felt that that was optional? Because he had been taught that the law of God was lip service only because his father had done nothing but live outside of it for the entire time that his kids were alive. Where do you think his sons learned their view of God and their view of women? Where in your life are you placing blame on others instead of taking responsibility? Where in your life is it easier for you to blame the people around you than it is to look in the mirror? What parts of your life do you need to take a deep look at? Because what you know to be true in your heart and what you're putting out in the world are two completely different things. We still got more in this passage. All right, let's go back to Genesis 38. We're going to go to verse 25 and see what happens next. So remember, Judah had just gotten real mad at Tamar for being promiscuous. That's how he viewed it. So, and he calls her out and says she needs to be burned to death. In verse 25, it says, But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. I would say that too. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. And then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah. See, the things that Judah handed over to Tamar were things that could have only belonged to him. If you were here at the end of the Haggai series, you got to hear Corey talk about the, the purpose of a signet ring. That ring that Judah handed to Tamar, that was something that was only owned by a person in a position of power. What would happen is when they would need to sign legal documents or stamp their name on something, wax would be melted and they would take the ring that was on their hand and they would press it into the wax and it would signify that I put my stamp on this. It was one of the most powerful ways that a person could sign a document at that time. And there's no person that could have owned that but Judah. Now, there's a ton of symbolism in the cord and in the staff, but that's another discussion for another day. The things that she sent back to him, that's what secured her life. What's super interesting, I think, is that Tamar 
who had been insanely wronged and mistreated by this family. She treated them with the respect they had never given to her. See, what she could have done, when they wanted to pull her out and, and burn her, she could have taken everything and had it hidden a little bit, right? And then got out there, when they light the fire, drop that stuff and be like, who's that belong to? She could have put the whole family on blast. She could have done it. But she didn't. She didn't do that. She confronted the entire situation without putting the shame on anyone else that had been put on her. She did not repay evil for evil. She was abused. She was lied to. She was labeled as cursed. And all she did was send back some items and a message. And what Judah also could have done, Judah could have taken all that, hit it, and been like, oh, crap. Burn her. Because I don't want anybody to know how it happened. He could have done that. But he didn't. Judah, prior to this moment, was a person more willing to sleep with what was known as a shrine prostitute. A shrine prostitute, this was a practice in um, any pagan religion, any religion outside of the Israelites' faith. They had these things called shrine prostitutes, which, which were, they were considered a slightly classier prostitute. And what they engaged in was sexual cult worship, and they called it worship to whatever the said God was. So when Judah slept with Tamar, he was engaging in cult worship of a pagan god. He had become someone who was more willing to do that than to uphold the laws of the god he was raised with. And so when Tamar sent all this stuff back, she's going out on a limb saying, I hope he's still willing to uphold the customs of the Israelite nation. It was a gamble. But Judah honored Tamar and her actions. He said, she is more righteous than I. And while he's done a lot of stuff, very wrong up to this point, he was repentant of what he had done. And he named her righteous after he had named her cursed. I'm not sure if he'd have done the same thing if she'd have put him on blast in the middle of the community. So let me ask you this. Are you able to confront what has hurt you without putting others down? Are you able to confront those who have wronged you and the things who, that have hurt you without putting the same shame on somebody else that they have put on you. I don't know if I could do what Tamar did. I truly don't know if I could do it. 
what she had experienced in her life up to that point was horrible, absolutely horrible. But she repaid Judah with respect. She honored his position as the patriarch of that family. She honored the God that he said with his mouth, but not with his actions, that he served. And she did not repay him with evil. And listen, we see that she gets two sons after that. She gets, actually, she gets two sons, one for each of the husbands that she had had. So there's heirs. There's an heir for Ur and there's an heir for Onan, which is more honor than they deserved. She gets the two sons. She gets the secure future. And then what also happens is she becomes the matriarch of the tribe of Judah. When we look at the lineage of Jesus, it's Tamar that's listed, not the daughter of Shua, whose name we don't even know. It's not even recorded. Tamar gets remembered, and she gets made the matriarch that would eventually produce the Messiah of the world. When we look through the lineage in, in Matthew chapter 1, we see Tamar, we see a whole bunch of other people, and then we see Jesus. He used her lineage to bring about the Savior of the world. Tamar pursued what was right in the eyes of God when no one around her was willing to do it. Did she do it in an unconventional way? Absolutely. She worked within the bounds of the culture that she was living in. Are you willing to do what is right instead of what is easy? Are you taking responsibility for yourself? And are you focused on getting even? Or are you focused on getting right with God? Tamar's life was in no way easy. And she gets remembered with a pretty bad rep sometimes. But she chose not to live in bitterness and not to live in resentment and not to live in self-pity. She chose to pursue what was, what was promised to her instead of sitting in just a pool of bitterness. That is insanely hard. And so as we look at this lineage and we make our way to Mary in a few weeks leading into Advent, let us do our best to remember Tamar, whose story is not typically one that gets told. And let us remember her with a little more respect than what she has been given in the past. She is a woman who can inspire us to pursue the promises of God, even when they seem entirely out of reach. She pursued what was right in the eyes of God when no one around her 
was willing to do it. I would hope that we could be a church that does the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that even when things are so uncomfortable, even when stories are painful to look at, when they bring up things that we don't want to see, things in our own lives that we don't want to remember, Father, I thank you that you are still good. Father, I pray that as we reflect on these questions and on these lessons, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who can be honest with ourselves. I pray that you would help us to be people who, no matter what we've experienced, we do not seek to put down or belittle the people in front of us. But, Father, I pray that you would help us to be people that look for ways to honor you in all situations. Father, I pray that we would be people who value being right in your eyes more than we value getting even and making ourselves look better. Father, I pray that we would never be people who step on others in order to raise ourselves up. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are. And it's in the precious name of your son Jesus that we pray.